the uh, last of the congregational members to uh, to speak. Um, and uh, I, I was really hoping that I'd get the opportunity to speak right after Rami and Frida, so I'm glad that that worked out in the scheduling. I appreciate that. Um, but I know uh, Trevor mentioned this last week, and I just kind of wanted to echo that. I really enjoy listening to different members of the congregation speak. Um, while we've all had varying levels of anxiety, um, it's been a really good opportunity for growth and development, so I'd encourage more of it. And then it's also given me a, a renewed appreciation for our pastors who do this on a weekly basis. So, um, Anyways, if you'd please turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. First Timothy 4, verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. Uh, Several years ago, I read this book. It's called The uh, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. And I think um, it was one of the recommended congregational readings that we had several years back. So I know several of you have have read it. Um, But it's, it's really insightful just regarding the spiritual disciplines and practicing them and their application. So I definitely recommend reading it. Um, I wanted to, uh, and, and I'll reference it throughout uh, the discussion today. Um, I wanted to revisit the topic for, for several reasons. I know I kind of joked about it earlier, but um, I am thankful for the message that the Makars gave us last week because uh, I think it ties in really nicely with what we're going to be talking about today. Um, There's a number of things that really stuck with me that they had said, but one thing that Rami had mentioned was um, we shouldn't be investing in things that are temporal. Right? We should invest in things that are internal, eternal. Um, we live in a very shallow and superficial culture, right? and it seems to be moving more and more in that direction. Um, instant access to anything and instant gratification are kind of the order of the day. Right? Quieting our souls and plunging ourselves into a deeply spiritual journey to know whom before we stand is kind of the epitome of counterculture. Now, I wouldn't categorize anybody in this uh, congregation as being shallow or superficial. Um, but I do know that we're a forgetful people, right? We, we could use reminders all the time of these kind of basic principles that we should be living by. So that was one reason. Um, another reason is that I know we have new congregation members, right? People that have either come in or we have several that have gone through catechism. And so I think it's good to repeat these and, and kind of um, uh, guide them through in this process. So... Um, After doing just a little bit of research uh, on the topic, you'll find that there isn't really a consensus list on the specific spiritual disciplines, right? Some people say that there are seven. Some say that there are ten. Foster talks about twelve, and he breaks them up into three categories. There's the inward disciplines, which are meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. There's the outward disciplines, which are submission, um, service, simplicity, and solitude. And then there's the corporate disciplines, which are confession, Worship, guidance, and celebration. So when thinking about this sermon and kind of how I was going to break it up, I knew that I wouldn't be able to go through 12 spiritual disciplines in in one uh, sermon and kind of cover them and do them any justice, right? Especially after just acknowledging that the culture we live in has has trouble kind of focusing on anything and and diving into the depths and and riches of it. So I knew that wouldn't work. Um, And after getting into the material, I realized how each one of these disciplines could elicit an entire sermon series on its own, right? But um, 
No, I, I just realized that planning 12 uh, sermons when I haven't actually given one might be uh, a little ambitious. So in the end, I decided to focus on three of the four uh, internal disciplines that I mentioned before. So it's meditation, prayer, and fasting. Um, before getting too far ahead, I did just want to talk about the title of the book, right? Celebration of Discipline. Um, it's kind of an ironic statement, right? Um, maybe not to the parents out there, but I'm sure to some of the uh, Generation Zers that we have in the audience. Um, when you think of discipline, I doubt the word celebration comes to your mind, right? Um, kind of an oxymoron in that regard. Um, there's a, a retired Navy SEAL out there. Um, who is now a businessman, he's an author and a podcaster that I listen to from time to time. And when he's talking about discipline, he puts it this way. Um, discipline equals freedom. So when we have a discipline of, of waking up early, for example, if we have the discipline to wake up early, we have the freedom of time to get whatever it is we need accomplished before we start our work day or our school day. If we have the discipline of maintaining a healthy diet and exercise, then we have the freedom from the ailments and conditions that typically accompany poor diets and, and you know, no exercise. If we have the discipline of, or financial discipline, then we have the freedom to live debt-free if we have that option, or we just at least have more options opened up to us than we would otherwise, right? So the examples kind of go on and on, but I think you get the point, right? So um, how does that relate to our spiritual life? Um, oftentimes we think of sin, as these individual acts that either break one of God's laws or kind of general disobedience to God, right? But the scriptures are clear that um, sin is a condition that has plagued humanity ever since the fall, right? Sinful habits are ingrained within us from the very moment of birth, right? We are enslaved to it. And um, obviously I can't say that just practicing the act of these spiritual disciplines in and of themselves can't liberate us from sin, right? And I wanted, I know that kind of sometimes goes without saying, but I wanted to make sure I said that because I know, especially when I was younger, I thought that I could, through sheer force of will and determination, kind of walk a straight line, right? But obviously, to no avail. Um, so even those um, who throughout history have committed themselves to righteousness through action were unable to. They appear to be righteous on the outside, but they are like whitewashed tombs, right? Like the scriptures say. Um, Paul emphatically talks about this about uh, in Philippians 3. So if you turn with me to Philippians 3, verse 4. Philippians 3, verse 4. Um, and I pick up about halfway through the verse. If anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh... I, far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Even before his conversion, Paul was a, a pretty righteous fellow, right? He was a pretty righteous guy. Um, but even he recognized his flesh enough to say, the good that I want, I do not do but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Um, Romans tells us, obviously Paul, you know, with Romans, he goes on to say that um, righteousness is the free gift of God through Christ alone. Okay? Righteousness is the free gift of God through Christ alone. Um, and so, if you're kind of trying to think through this um, 
Righteousness is, in fact, a, a, a gift from God, and we can attain it through human striving. Our, our, our actions are, are insufficient just on our own accord. Um, so one might logically conclude that once we make a commitment for Christ, we kind of just go along our lives, and we expect that God is just going to transform us, right? Well, as you can imagine, the answer is no. Um, Foster eloquently puts it in his book, um, God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. And I love that picture. When we practice the spiritual disciplines, we're willingly placing ourselves before God and asking him to mold us into the image of his son. As a, uh, a farmer, as we know, he can't make his crops grow. Right? He can prepare the soil. He can plant the seed. He can water. He can try to do everything he can to, to make ideal conditions. But it's only through the course of nature that those seeds will actually sprout. And that's what spiritual disciplines are. They're a means of sowing unto the Spirit. Now that we have the framework for the spiritual disciplines and the roles that they play in our lives, we'll go ahead and get into some of the specifics. But uh, one of the common recurring themes that you'll kind of see as we go throughout this is that these spiritual disciplines are just so interconnected, right? You can't really practice one well without doing the others, as we'll see. So first is the discipline of meditation. And if you'll turn with me to Psalm 1, verse 1. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Meditation, simply put, is listening to God's word. It's reflecting on God's works, it's rehearsing God's deeds, and it's ruminating on God's laws. It's the ability to hear God's word, uh, words and obey His commands. Um, the scriptures are full examples of those who have meditated on the Word of God, just like we read, or even just reflected on His attributes, right? The Psalms goes on to say, When I consider your heavens, the works of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, who is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Notice how it says, when I consider your heavens, and not if I consider your heavens, right? We should take the time to see the attributes of God and reflect on those and kind of internalize them. Uh, I think today meditation, sometimes in Christian circles, kind of has a, a negative connotation, right? Personally, when I think of meditation, uh, I get a picture in my head of these Tibetan monks in orange robes, right? And they're just quietly contemplating all day long. And that's kind of the picture that I get. And truth be told, there's many Eastern religions that have found the value of meditation. Um, but we know that there's a, a long history of Jewish and, and Christian practitioners of faith or of meditation um, that have gone back for millennia, right? So it's not necessarily whether the question isn't whether we should meditate. It's what is the object of our meditation, um, used to do yoga like several years back. I know some, some people have as well. And um, my favorite pose at the very end uh, is called Savasana. You lay flat on your back after you've just gone through torture, and you're just kind of breathing and focusing on your breathing. And um, the instructor would go through and basically tell us, completely empty your mind of every single thought and just focus on your breathing. And so, you know, naturally you're just like, don't think, don't think, don't think, don't think. Um, because just 
not thinking anything is kind of uh, a difficult concept for us to, to grasp. Um, but that's kind of like some forms of meditation, right? You're completely seeking to empty yourself. Um, you're trying to detach yourself from all distractions and, and empty yourself out. Whereas with Christian meditation, what we're trying to do is we're filling ourselves with the Word of God. So there's a very uh, dis- you know, big distinction in that that I wanted to call out. So, um, how then do we meditate? Preparing ourselves for the activity, I think, is pretty straightforward. It's simple, but it's not easy. Um, so, what you need to do is you need to separate out time, um, and you need to remove yourself from all distractions. All distractions, right? Including the one at your hip. Um, so, uh, once we get to the point where this skill uh, builds up and we become f- proficient, then you can get to the point where you're meditating throughout the day, right? And through the watches of the night, like the scriptures say. But as you're starting out, just take this time and kind of do it slowly first. So, take, take away all distractions. And even once, um, well, uh, then we have to practice, like I was talking about earlier, practice quieting your souls. So, even once we get rid of all the, str- the distractions, Um, quieting our souls is is a difficult task, right? Our brains are so used to being fragmented with the flurry of activity throughout the day, right? Like, I forgot to do this, I need to do this tomorrow, whoops, I forgot to pick up the kids. Whatever the case might be, we're so used to being kind of all over the place that quieting our soul becomes a, um, is a challenge that we need to learn how to work through. Um, Then we need to choose a passage of scripture to focus on and we need to resist the urge to kind of gloss through several passages at once. Um, one thing, it's helpful to kind of set some guidelines for yourself, but you don't want to, to keep strict rules that are going to hinder you. Like uh, one thing that I, you know, if I read scripture, I say, oh, I need to read at least one chapter, right, this, this day in order to feel like I accomplished something. But the book talks about maybe just picking one verse and meditating on it throughout the week, right? Just kind of exploring the, dip, uh, the depth and the richness and the meaning that that verse and how it applies and everything like that. So remember, one of the main problems that we're trying to rid ourselves is this need to hurry, this need to move. Um, So let me read a little uh, excerpt from uh, this book regarding uh, meditation. Suppose we want to meditate on Jesus' staggering statement, My peace I give to you. John 14, 27. Our task is not so much to study the passage as it is to be initiated into the reality of which this passage speaks. We brood on the truth, that he is now filling us with his peace. The heart and the mind and the spirit are awakened to this inflowing peace. We sense all motions of fear stilled and overcome by power and love and self-control. Rather than dissecting peace, we are entering into it. We're enveloped, absorbed, gathered into his peace. And the wonderful thing about such an experience is that the self is quite forgotten. We're no longer worried about how we can make ourselves more at peace. For we are intending to the uh, impartation of peace within our hearts. No longer do we laboriously think ways to act peacefully, for acts of peace spring spontaneously from within. Um, I did want to note that kids are absolutely part of that list of distractions that I was talking about earlier, um, but they are a little bit different, right? Um, If if your kids are anything like mine, um, and you are somewhere in the house, uh, they will hunt you down and they will find you. and so, uh, even though you do want to have time away, um, uh, I found myself, as, as I was, you know, going through this material and, and reading this book, I'm trying to practice these more and more in my life, right? So, 
taking time to uh, try to work on meditation, right? And my kids obviously would would come in and, and bother me. And I find myself like barking at them, right? When they have the audacity to come, uh, interrupt me when I'm trying to be spiritual and I, you know, kind of lose my temper, right? Um, so after kind of regaining my composure, uh, a thought kind of hit me. What if I sought after God the way that my kids seek after me, right? Your kids just constantly want to be by you, want to seek you out. So it's just kind of an, inter- an interesting thought. But it would be a terrible waste of an opportunity if our kids never saw us practicing these disciplines and we didn't bring them alongside us. So while you absolutely need time alone and you need time to yourself with just God, uh, make sure that they're along for the journey. Um, Stacy recently finished a book uh, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, and it sounded like a really great book. It gave her all kinds of ideas about how I can improve my life. Um, and, you know, truth be told, I... Uh, I do have a problem with hurrying. I'm just kind of a, a busy person. I'm a busybody person. I don't sit well. So there was actually a lot of good, good things that came about it. Um, but one of the things that the author said that he and his wife have implemented in their family, they have uh, kids uh, as well. And so once a month, <clears throat> each of them would have the opportunity by themselves while their spouse watched the kid uh, or kids. Um, they would take the entire day and they would go by themselves and they would specifically use that day for prayer, meditation, and study. Um, oftentimes I think they would go to a hotel actually by themselves and so that way they can completely remove themselves from all distractions, right? Um, And when I first heard that, I was like, nah, that's not going to, like that that can't happen. I'm not going to go in particular not to a hotel. But then I thought about it um, and I was like, well, why not? Why can't I take a day? Why can't Stacey take a day or any of us and go just to be with God, completely free from all distractions. Maybe going to a uh, hotel isn't feasible, right? Um, It's expensive, and especially doing that once a month. But there has to be somewhere that you can go where you're by yourself, completely removed from distractions, once a month for the entire day, and to spend it on your relationship with God. Um, There's a saying that I heard a while back, and uh, it it applies to pretty much most things things in life, but in particular this, and it says... um, If it's important enough to you, you will find a way. If not, you will find an excuse, right? So I hope that it would be important enough for us to do that. Um, And obviously, once a month isn't isn't enough. That's not like a only do that, right? It's something that we should be doing daily, but I think it would be helpful to do that, um, to fit that in uh, however we could. Um, Foster rightly states, it's impossible to learn how to meditate from a book, or even a sermon for that matter. We learn to meditate by meditating. So remember the analogy of the farmer. What we need to do is prepare ourselves as best we can and uh, let God fulfill the assurance, um, he ma- the assurances he made to, seek, um, to those who seek after him. So the discipline of prayer. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 6, verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
Um, prayer is probably the most familiar of the disciplines with us, which is important because it is one of, if not the most important um, practices in our connection with God, right? It places us in a continuous intimacy with our Father. Um, and we need to look no further than Jesus, who throughout his ministry on earth, right, he would take the time to leave not only just, just the crowds and the people, but he would leave his disciples as well to go be with his Father. Um, and uh, it's important because he was God in the flesh, right? He is God. He and the Father are one, right? And still he found it important to take that time uh, and, and separate himself. Um, because of this familiarity, I, I didn't want to go into the how-to pray uh, piece of it. Um, Jesus gave us the perfect pattern of prayer um, throughout the Gospels, right? The Lord's Prayer. But what spurred Jesus to give the Lord's Prayer? His disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, um, I know these you know, disciples came from various different professions, right? They had different backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. But we, we know that they would have gone through at least the beginnings of uh, Torah school, right? Through Bar Mitzvah. And so they would have been well-versed in Torah, well-versed in how to pray, but they wanted to take the opportunity to learn from the Master while he was there on earth so that they could learn uh, how he would have them pray. Just like each of the other disciplines, prayer is something that's learned, and it's something uh, that we need to practice. Um, for me personally, prayer or, or praying here at the service or praying um, at men's group, um, and in particular, praying around our Sabbath table has really helped me get the repetitions I need to, um, to improve uh, my prayer. And it's not improve and practice uh, in the sense of you want to sound better. It's um, aligning your will with the will of God to desire the things that he desires and to love the things that he loves. Um, knowing and obeying the will of God will help us more effectively pray it into the lives of others. And with more practice, you can pray with more authority uh, as well. There's a couple of misconceptions that Foster addresses in the book that I thought would be helpful to talk about uh, today. And the first one is this misconception that we live in a closed universe where everything is fixed, right? We think that because God knows the beginning from the end, uh, that everything is set in stone as kind of a matter of his will, right? And I uh, have thought this before as well. I remember Dr. Soak specifically a, a while back. I don't recall how long ago, but he said, um, God's will is going to be accomplished whether we're here or not, whether we're praying or not, whether we are, you know, regardless of what we're doing, God's will is going to be done. Uh, and that's, you know, absolutely right. Um, but let's think about it in context. What is the will of God? Right? We know it is the fulfillment of his covenants. It's the redemption of his people, both Jew and Gentile. It's the eventual eradication of evil, and it is um, establishing his kingdom on earth. Right, And there's other stuff in there, but there's a whole lot of stuff in between right? that we can lift up to God in prayer, that we absolutely have the privilege of, of speaking to a God and asking if he, would, if he would change these things on our behalf if we come to him. And, uh, you know, it, it makes me think of the uh, parable that Jesus told where the woman would go and constantly request of the king uh, that something be changed. Um, and finally got to the point where he got so bothered by being asked that, you know, he granted her wish. So we definitely have, um, you know, uh, we get to be co-creators, as, as Paul talks about, or um, have that, that ability to bring them before God. Um, another misconception is that our faith will take a hit if our prayer isn't answered the first time, every time. Um, how many of us are a little bit gun-shy um, or even just a little bit apprehensive when we're praying uh, over someone who is in need of healing, right? 
Um, or if uh, we are apprehensive and we actually do it, we kind of build in like an exit clause, right? Like, uh, God, please heal this person, but your will be done. God, I'd really like you to heal this person, but if you don't, it's totally cool. Just don't worry about it. Um, I'm, I'm guilty of that, not that exact language, but, you know, I kind of pull back. Um, so let's read together James 5, 13 through 16. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I didn't see an exit clause in there, right? Um, I saw the repenting and the forgiving of sins. I saw the laying on of hands, the repenting or the um, uh, anointing of oil, and healing. Um, some of you already know, but my uh, father-in-law, uh, whose name is Rance, his brother Jack uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and the doctor, when he gave him the diagnosis, told him that he had uh, just a couple weeks uh, of life to live. Um, so it had advanced <clears throat> pretty aggressively. So Rance dropped everything. <clears throat> he flew out to Pennsylvania uh, to spend um, the last days with his brother as he, he lived on this earth. Um, and as a fr- uh, family, we got together and we prayed. Um, we prayed uh, at men's group. We prayed individually. Uh, around our Sabbath table, we prayed. Um, day after day, week after week, and eventually month after month. That was almost a year ago. And Uncle Jack is getting ready to celebrate his 80th birthday. Um, in that time span, he went and saw, you know, he got a second opinion, because obviously he's still around. So he was uh, interested, and they had him on a tube, and he kind of was starting to get hungry. And so um, went to get a second opinion. When he was in the waiting room, um, the, the you know, second doctor that he was seeing came out and called his name, and so Uncle Jack raised his hand. And the doctor kind of took a, took a uh, double check, you know, look at him. And he said, the patient that's on this chart is not the patient that I'm looking at right now. Um, so he, he still does have cancer that he's battling through. Um, they have a different, um, what is that, prognosis or plan of action that they're, that they're doing. Um, but he's, he's doing okay. And I remain unconvinced that it was just a misdiagnosis in the first place. Um, but I do want to address something that I, I do struggle with. Um, because there has been often times when I pray for someone and they aren't healed, right? I'm sure we've all kind of seen that. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a definitive answer uh, for that. Um, we live in a fallen world, right? Sin is still here. Sickness is still here. And death is still here, right? And we know this. Um, Uncle Jack, uh, his body is still failing, and eventually he's going to pass. Um, I do know a handful of people who've told me that uh, God has taught them more reliance on Him through their chronic pain or illness um, just because it was too much of a burden for them to bear on their own. Um, so whether that's the purpose, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but I do want to say that we serve a God who is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose, even if we don't understand. 
But if we choose not to pray openly and in private for those who are sick and in need of healing, then I think that it shows a lack of maturity and a lack of faith in us, or faith from us. Um, I was talking to Dr. Stokes about prayer, uh, just kind of um, as I was uh, preparing for this. Um, and he reminded me about Elijah when he prayed um, that the rain and dew would, would not fall from heaven, right? That concept wasn't something that Elijah had come up with. Leviticus and Deuteronomy are clear that if the children of Israel turn away from God and turn to other gods and they start worshiping idols, that the heavens are going to be closed up, the land will not produce fruit, and the people are going to perish. Elijah knew that, and he had faith in God. He, he believed and had confidence in God that he would fulfill that. And so uh, Elijah moved forward in that confidence. James tells us, that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Jesus tells us that the miracles that he performed on earth are something that we're going to be able to do as well, and even greater, right? He tells us that in the Gospels. But like I said earlier, aligning our will to that of our fathers is paramount. James 4, 3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, and you spend it on your own passions. To ask with right motives means that we need our, our passions transformed. Um, I do want to encourage all of us to pray more, right? Unfortunately, a lot of us, um, myself included, um, are content at times kind of taking a back seat and allowing someone else to uh, have this communion with God on our behalf, right? I haven't done any um, statistical analysis, but I'd imagine that on Sunday mornings when it comes time to do the uh, readings and the prayers and you're looking for someone, Right, The readings get snatched up a lot quicker than the ones that have an accompanying prayer. Right, When Trevor starts asking, we all of a sudden start looking for something that we didn't actually drop. You know? And uh, uh, you know, we already know who you are, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, but we just have that, uh, that discomfort with praying in front of people, right? even in small groups, in, in men's group. Right? It got, got to the point where Brian had to um, eventually ordain me as the pastor of prayer. Uh, and I think it's because he knew I was kind of uncomfortable with that. Um, but before any of you think more highly of me than you should, you should know that we have a lot of unofficial titles in men's group. We've got um, a sports ministry pastor, a pastor of outreach, a pastor of finance. So some of us have the burden of wearing multiple hats. It's, uh, it's quite a thing. Um, but the point I'm trying to make uh, is that prayer is a skill that can be developed and honed with practice. Again, it's simple, <clears throat> but it's not easy. The discipline of fasting. Turn with me to Luke 4, and this is the last discipline we're going to talk about, and we'll get you out of here. Luke 4, 1 through 4. <clears throat> Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, "If you are the Son of Man, um, if you are the Son of God, tell us, uh, go tell this stone to become bread." And Jesus answered him, "It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone." Fasting, simply put, is abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Uh, the central idea is the voluntary normal, um, the voluntary denial of normal everyday function for the purpose of intense spiritual activity. 
It's a reminder that, um, kind of just as we read, that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Uh, we live in a time when uh, gluttony and consumerism uh, is at an all-time high, right? Um, many of us are convinced that if we don't have three square meals and many snacks throughout the day, uh, that there's a high likelihood, likelihood that we're going to starve to death. Um, I would be lying if I didn't admit that I was a little bit embarrassed about how difficult fasting is for me, um, especially when, uh, like last week, we see pictures of Lebanese families with their refrigerators open and they're just completely empty, um, or hearing that um, many of them go days and even weeks on end with only having a little bit of rice and a little bit of grain, right? Um, I take a little bit of solace in the fact that I was born with a food-related condition that most of you don't need to deal with. I'm Italian, and so that's my cross to bear, right? But regardless, you know, no one really has an excuse of why we can't restrict the cravings of our fleshly appetites in order to feast on the Word of God. Um, There's a few examples that I wanted to mention, uh, and the differences are just slightly nuanced because they all have the same purpose. Um, there's times when fasting is used as a means of intercession when it comes to um, when it seems like a course of action is imminent and we're pleading with God to either change the inevitable or change his mind. Right? I'm thinking of like Esther, the story of Esther. Some specific fasts like Yom Kippur and Lent um, have the goal of self-affliction and curbing our, our fleshly desires and are more corporate in nature. Regular fasting is drawing close to God, uh, obviously on a more regular basis, uh, with the purpose of having Him sustain us. There are many examples of this throughout the scripture, and one uh, specific time uh, that Jesus was abstaining from food. Uh, He was telling His disciples, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish His work. Fasting can be carried out in uh, varying different degrees, right? In Daniel, he talks about going on kind of a partial fast where he abstains from tasty food and from wine and from meat. In Nehemiah, we see, and and in many other places, we see more of a traditional fast where we're abstaining from food, but water is permitted. And then uh, we see an absolute fast uh, in places like Esther, uh, where she asks all the Jews in in Susa to uh, abstain completely from food and from water for three days. That's obviously the most uh, extreme type of fasting, um, and it is the the least frequent. So how then do we fast? Um, First and foremost, uh, obviously I think, um, you know, Trevor and Dr. Stokes are are good at saying you have to be healthy enough, first of all, to make sure that you can perform the function, right? If you, uh, we know that people are sick and sometimes they have a a reason why they can't participate in this, um, or if you are pregnant uh, or nursing, um, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And um, some of you are even over 40 years old. So you really have to, you know, make sure that you're assessing your overall health situation and, and that you're physically able to, to do this. So um, with that, um, yeah, um, lost my spot. Okay. So I know that, yeah, I know the vast majority of the congregation, um, we observe uh, Yom Kippur together, right? And we um, observe uh, uh, Lent, fasting during Lent. And so one of the things that I really enjoy kind of at the end when we all uh, break the fast together is kind of just hearing everybody's experiences, right, that they've gone through uh, throughout that day and just kind of, I don't know, just different struggles that they've done or especially things that they've done with their kids that kind of have 
brought them along, like different you know tactics that they've used to kind of help uh, their kids, and that's kind of um, uh, one of the most crucial aspects, right? Is bringing our kids alongside us and and doing that. Um, but um, one of the common themes that I've seen is that we start small, kind of like we do for Yom Kippur. That's a 24-hour fast from sundown to sundown, and you're essentially skipping two meals. For kids who are old enough to participate, maybe they just start out by skipping one meal. Um, or if this is really just a, a struggle for you, um, uh, maybe you can just have uh, fruit juice as, as kind of a means until you can eventually graduate to the point where you're just drinking water, right? Just kind of having some little bit of sustenance to get you through. And then you uh, break the fast with fresh food or vegetables or a taco guy like we do at, at the Rollins. Um, and there should be a great deal of inner rejoicing for kind of that time that you just had uh, with God and that, um, that affliction of yourself. Um, opportunity to rejoice afterwards. And if it's a corporate fast, you should have fellowship with the body as you are all breaking the fast together. Um, once we make... Uh, actually, uh, did anyone notice how I said um, starting small, like we do for Yom Kippur? Um, once we make this type of fasting uh, a discipline in our life, uh, we can move to a 36-hour fast, right, where we skip three meals. When thinking about my past experience fasting, I read this line from the book, and I kind of... Uh, I, uh, made me laugh about myself, so kind of wanted to read it here. And this is, uh, Foster's talking about basically after fasting just one day. You'll probably feel some hunger pangs or discomfort before the time is up. That is not real hunger. Your stomach has been trained through years of conditioning to give signals of hunger at certain hours. In many ways, the, the stomach is like a spoiled child. And a spoiled child does not need indulgence. It needs discipline. Um, once you've accomplished a 36-hour fast, you can seek the Lord and determine that if you feel led to kind of go on a longer one. Um, think about the impact on your spiritual life it would have if you could do a three- to a seven-day fast. Uh, it would absolutely be a struggle, um, especially in that first three-day uh, window. That is uh, typically the most difficult that, that people have talked about. Um, that's when your body is, uh, you're getting the most uh, hunger pains that you've felt in that period. And also you're just experiencing the most discomfort because your body is kind of ridding itself of these toxins that have built up overall for, from our diets. Um, but at the end, uh, it'll be worth it. Um, when reflecting on uh, one time that I had um, uh, fasted more recently, and just in full disclosure, I'm not in the habit of fasting on a monthly basis. Um, what I, uh, I am trying to, again, as I mentioned earlier, that I'm trying to, to live these out. Um, but I, you know, I fast at Yom Kippur and, and at times during Lent. But as far as regular fasting, I'm, I'm not in that uh, habit just yet. Um, but I, I fasted did a 36-hour fast, so I, I completed three meals, or I skipped three meals. And then two later, two days later, for whatever reason, I was uh, thinking about and just kind of reflecting on. And I ended up comparing the day that I had fasted with the day that I had just completed, um, and it really struck me how much on the day that I was fasting, my thoughts were so much more focused on eternal matters of the spirit than the day that I had just completed. And there wasn't any other difference. They were both work days. So I was doing my normal work things. I was handling my normal home responsibilities. But throughout the day when I was fasting, and again, because it's, it's a struggle, right? It's a mental struggle, especially if you're not used to going long times without food, um, you kind of have that reliance on God, that feeling like, God, just help me through this, 
you know, and it's not that you're super struggling, but you just feel like you are because you're so used to eating. And so I thought to myself that I was really doing myself a disservice by only going through that, you know, a couple times a year instead of practicing it more regularly. In closing today, um, I wish I could say that I was a shining example of someone who's practiced these uh, regularly um, throughout all the years, but uh, I'm not. Um, As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why I wanted to speak on the spiritual disciplines today was because I recognized that I need to do more of these in my life um, each and every day. Uh, I'm kind of a walking example of that statement that Paul made, right? The good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So if you are anything like me, uh, and maybe you were sitting here and listening and um, maybe getting a little bit of conviction that uh, either you're not doing the disciplines or maybe there's, you're not doing them to the fullness that you feel like you should, uh, I would like to issue you a little challenge. Um, I want you to pick any one of the disciplines that we talked about, meditation, prayer, or fasting. I want you to think about what it is that you're willing to commit to, and I want you to practice it. When life is good and we live in comfort, we feel like we don't need God. We don't rely on Him for sustenance. We can't allow complacency to draw us away from that eternal perspective that we were talking about earlier. Invest your life in things that are eternal. Last week's message was a really good reminder of that, um, and I hope that this one was as well. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you.